Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. I love what you did with your hands there. That yeah, was fun. Yeah, I was fine. trying to hype myself up. <laughs> I thought we sounded like newscasters just then. Did you feel that way? We're like, thank you. No? Sure. Maybe. I, I, felt, I felt that energy. Huh. Yeah. Is that a bad energy? No. I feel like newscasters are very peppy. Yeah, I know. That's what, and we were like, and we're on. And we're here. (laughs) And there's a horrible hurricane coming towards Florida. That's right. We're going to give it a white person name. Here we go. Brenda, (laughs) she's coming at you. So today is the knot. Today is the knot. Today's an interesting tie-in because it's, it's it's our cult episode. Shout out to the cults. It's also a pride episode. We love, we love the intersection there. Yes. And I am doing part two of Harvey Milk, but there is a cult tie-in, which I think you'll find particularly interesting. I am already very intrigued. Yeah. Um, Also, I think we should take a moment to do two things. Mm -hmm. First, acknowledge that this is only our second cult episode this season. We are really doing oh yeah the darn thing with our regular episodes and having so much fun with those. And we gave ourselves permission this season to be a little bit more flexible around the cults. So this one I am really, really excited about and love our movie that we picked. I love our cult tie-in already. So Loving it. There's all of that. Um, and I love the spontaneity of a cult episode here and there. It's like a little seasoning. Yeah, a little... Uh, little sprinkle i know you you and i are both doing the hand motion even though no (laughs) one can see it my second thing is we should talk about what we're drinking this morning because we we are recording in the morning this is a brunch recording so obviously we're gonna need a brunch cocktail guys because brunch cocktails are the best cocktails amen sometimes amen well last time we recorded uh we were having like a pre-drink before we were gonna have our our generalized anxiety Mm mm-hmm and I tried to poison you with orange juice. Yes, you did. And I formally apologize. Thank you so that. much. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, it only happens about once a year. Yeah. So. Fair. Though when it does happen, it ends up being orange chicken, mm-hmm. which is just all the things that Wrapped up. I don't eat. So, so our cocktail today actually inspired a lot of conversation back and forth mm-hmm. over the name. We are drinking... <laughs> A Bloody Mary. And we are calling it... The Typhoid Bloody Mary. Typhoid Mary! (laughs) Or... Bloody Typhoid Mary. Bloody Typhoid Mary. What do you guys like better? We're in two camps. Um, We're trying not to let it rip us apart. (laughs) Um, By the time this episode comes out, we will have decided. Maybe. But we also might need your help. So we'll put something up on the Instagram. Do we like Typhoid Bloody Mary or Bloody Typhoid Mary? And if you want to hear our reasonings, um, just continue to listen because I'm going to tell you. Right, exactly. <laughs> My thought process is because I'm team Typhoid Bloody Mary, because then you keep the Bloody Mary name together. Right. And then people know uh, what they're consuming. Also, I would like to say there's no fecal matter in this recipe. Absolutely. No owl pellets. We washed our hands. All of the above. She did not make them. Um, but it is a really funny name. It's a great name. It's a great name. It was just a brush of genius. Stroke of genius. Stroke of genius. Yeah. 
That's what yep. I'd say. So my thought is it should be bloody typhoid Mary because in terms of like descriptive words, bloody typhoid Mary sounds right because it's an adjective, bloody, and then typhoid Mary is the name. So mm-hmm. like keeping those together makes sense. But we're torn. We're like clearly into yeah. different camps here. Yours sounds like she's bloody. She probably was at some <laughs> she point. Was. <laughs> we're really hyping this drink up right now. People are going to be like, oh my God, I have to join Patreon right now. Well, because not only do you get our very secret Bloody Typhoid Mary, Typhoid Bloody Mary cocktail <laughs> recipe, you also get our favorite Bloody Typhoid Mary, Typhoid Bloody Mary toppers. Yes. Like the things that we like the most. Can I say that I had, um, I'd used the Typhoid Bloody Mary, Bloody Typhoid Mary um, mix uh, that, you know, we made the mm-hmm. recipe at my housewarming party. And my neighbor texted me and asked for the recipe later. Oh, my gosh. Did you tell them they had to join Patreon? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I w- it's way too much to be like, I have a podcast and blah, 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 blah. So I gave it to him. <laughs> so uh, call Tim if you want to circumvent the, the process. <laughs> um, but that made me feel good. I was like, well, we did the damn thing. We are nailing it. Geniuses. I also, I love all the options that come. Like, you, they're so personalized, so customizable. Mm-hmm. I did go to a restaurant. So we had your housewarming party and then mm-hmm. had your our amazing, I'm not going to say the whole name again, mm-hmm. but the Bloody Mary. Uh-huh. Um, and the next weekend went to brunch at a spot and I ordered a Bloody Mary from the restaurant and it didn't come with so much as a celery stick. Damn. And it tasted like they had run out of tomato juice and were like subbing other things, trying yeah. to make up for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, it was the worst Bloody Mary I'm I think so I've ever sorry. had. I had my first Bloody Mary ever with you. Do you remember that? No. So it was at a restaurant in D.C. I think it might have been your graduation. Probably. Yeah. Oh, the day after when mm-hmm. we went to that cute little yep. like, vegetarian brunch spot? Yep. Oh, my yep. gosh. I didn't know that was your first. And at the time, I was like, I don't get the hype about Bloody Marys. I have... Something has happened in my taste buds. I love it. I love savory. I love olives. Love a charcuterie board. Love pickled everything. Love pickles. Ooh, pickled everything. Ooh. Yeah. Pickled mm. okra has... Chef's kiss. Girl, I've been eating on that jar. Listen, there's a... Um, I might have a couple left if you want one. I do, actually. Okay. After... <laughs> We finished the mm-hmm. this drink in this episode. Perfect. Yes. So um, we were coming back from the mountains not too long ago and stopped at like this cute little roadside store, and they had pickled um, pickled okra. Yeah. And I was like, well, let's just buy a jar, oh, right? So like we can have it. I actually meant to bring it here mm-hmm. for today. Mm-hmm. Girl, that thing did not make it to the highway. I don't. We blame you. Smashed that jar. So good. It was delicious. Are you a fan of okra just like ordinarily? Oh, yeah. Okay. Some people are weirded out by the texture, but I will say that pickled okra does not have the sliminess that like steamed or fried okra sometimes can. Yeah. Yeah. So. Now, Sponsored by. <laughs> I really want some fried okra. Yeah. Do you I got know you, anywhere who delivers fi- fried okra? Because we're going to have to do lunch. No, but I went into a Walmart for the first time in 25 years. Oh, my gosh. And that's where I got the pickled okra. Really? Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. I was in the garden section. I thought maybe I'll wander over to my, you know, long lost pickled section, um, which I love. Mm-hmm. And um, the selection is great. Oh, my God. 
Thank so God. For so pickles. good. My mom's been pickling shit. And I think that's just what oh you do when goodness. you're retired. That's yeah. so sweet. It is. Um, and canning. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's, you know, getting ready for the Oregon Trail or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. We love that for her. What yeah. a great journey. You know what other journeys I love? Is this our very fun <laughs> transition? <laughs> yeah. Psychology and history. Um... But today we're doing things a little bit different. I am doing part two of Harvey Milk, which does have a cult tie-in, I promise you. The intersection's just, it's like an onion. Right. It's so like many layers. Ogre. Absolutely. Um, and then we'll talk about Priscilla. Let's do it. Queen of the desert. Queen of the desert, mate. All right, perfect. You ready? I go first this week, which totally threw me off. I wasn't ready. I know. I love that you get to go first on cult weeks. Will you it just really sit back and pressure relax. off. I know. All right. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy my typhoid, bloody Mary, bloody typhoid Mary. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. So last week we left off um, talking about how Harvey had been appointed to the Board of Permit Appeals. So he was the first, you know, gay person ever to be appointed to this particular, well, to this particular platform. Mm -hmm. Only five weeks into his role. He then announced that he would be running for California State Assembly. Okay. Launching, right? So the mayor fired him after he made that announcement. So Harvey Harvey Milk only made it five weeks in that particular role. Maybe he got a little too big for his britches. Who's to say? Who's to say? They're like, hey, it's a conflict of interest. You can't announce that you're running for another platform while you're currently in this one. Though I think DeSantis is doing that currently in Florida as the governor of Florida and also announcing that he's running for president. Mm-hmm. So anyone want to fire him? Cool, cool, cool. cool. That'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this lit a fire under under Harvey and he began to campaign more than ever. The campaign itself was very disorganized. Uh, volunteer lists were kept on scrap pieces of paper. The funds were that were used came straight out of the cash register at the camera store. Um, and the campaign manager's assistant was ele- an 11-year-old neighbor girl. Bless huh. her heart. She was like a gopher. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Something about all of this feels very on brand for everything we know at this point. Yeah. It's very grassroots, too. It's like, yeah, it is, you know. We're doing the best we can with what we got. 100%. Harvey himself was also disorganized. Um, He was hyperactive and prone to outbursts of temper. Uh, He was just a very passionate guy. We talked about that yesterday. Um, He would recover quickly only to move on to something else. Um, So he was was very hard to work with in that way because he would uh, get really passionate about something and kind of squirrel and move on to something else. Yeah, I could see that. Scott Smith, his partner, was feeling a little unsure of who Milk was becoming. Harvey would spend long hours distributing his literature and talking to people and trying to get as many votes as possible. He also got in with one of the most influential political groups in the city, the People's Temple. This sounds like a cult. Yes. Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Jim Jones. The Jim Jones. Yes. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, Jim Jones. Correct. Okay. So he started working with the People's Temple, who who was this huge, like, you know, at the time, this is when they were in San Francisco and California before they went to Guyana. And so they were very politically active. They were very progressive. There were people of all nationalities. 
ages and it was just a very inclusive group so why you know at the time yeah sounds sounds, sounds great. right up his alley yeah, right absolutely can can we do a small derail moment yes um so i grew up we talked about this in the methodist church and our we had a very small church so we only had student pastors and they what? rotated every like three years because they would graduate from oh. the divinity school and then be assigned to an actual like big church so huh. we were like the test church for a lot of students. Mm -hmm. Anyways, we had one guy. His name was Jim Jones. Shut up. And he came to our church. I was pretty young. I don't remember how old. But he stood up in the pulpit like his very first day and introduced himself. He was like, hi, I'm Jim. Jim Jones. I promise not to bring Kool-Aid to any of the cookouts. Oh, God. And I just kind of looked around and like everyone was super uncomfortable and like chuckly. I was like, oh. Yeah. Huh. Huh. I wonder what that means. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no Google. And there was no Google. So I asked my dad about it on the way home. And he like had to explain who Jim Jones was. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a hilarious joke. No one else in the church <laughs> seemed to appreciate it the way that I yeah, did. Yeah. They're like, mm. yeah, it's hard when you're a part of an organization. Um, you know, you got the group thing going on. You're like, how likely is it that, you know, he's going to bring us down that path? Right, right. So that's fair. So Harvey accepts the People's Temple volunteers to work the phones uh, for his campaign. And he even wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter in 1978 calling Jim Jones, quote, a man of the highest character. Ooh. Yeah. Knowing what's to come. Yes. Not so we can't put good judge of character on Harvey Milk's resume. No. Not yet. Not yet. Okay, no, great. No, not really at all, actually. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um, but the next big political hurdle to jump through was the opposition of a woman named Anita Bryant, which is also probably a drag name. Um, quote, Anita Jane Bryant, born March 25th, 1940. At Aries. She's an American singer and political activist known for her anti-gay activism. Oh. She scored three top 20 hits in the United States in the early 1960s. She was 1958's Miss Oklahoma beauty pageant winner and a brand ambassador from 1969 to 1980 for the Florida Citrus Commission. Got milk. <laughs> <laughs> That was a thing. So in the 1970s, she became known as an outspoken opponent of gay rights in the U.S. In 1977, in 1977, she ran the Save Our Children campaign. Sound familiar? Like it's like it's 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 like it's 1977 right now. Yes. Um, so she ran the Save the Save Our Children campaign to appeal a local ordinance in the Miami-Dade County, Florida. That prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Her involvement with the campaign was conde condemned by gay rights activists, obviously. Right. Uh, they were assisted by many other prominent figures in music, film, and television, and retaliated by boycotting the orange juice that she promoted. Though the campaign ended, ended successfully with a 69% majority vote to repeal the ordinance on June 7th, 1977, uh, Dade County restored the ordinance in 1998, by the way. 
Um, but it permanently damaged her public image, and her contract with the Florida Citrus Commission was terminated three years later. So it's a, you know, they're getting really po- political, and they're trying to hit it where it hurts, right? right. Which is, it's all about money. It always has been, always will be, still is, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. During this time, there was a huge political push in all of the LGBT boroughs to band together. So we know Castro Street was, uh, you know, a huge up-and-coming queer area. Oh, and a yeah. lot of other boroughs around the San Francisco area were uh, very similar. Right. So them banning together, it lit an even bigger fire under Harvey, and this was the turning point in his career. After the Anita Bryant scandal, 17 candidates from the Castro district entered into the next race for supervisor. Half of them were gay. The New York Times ran an article, an expose on San Francisco itself, and how the gay community had taken over the political scene. They estimated that a total of 750,000 people um, were the population at the time, and between 100 and 200,000 of those people were gay. Wow. The Castro Village Association grew to close to 100 businesses, and this area was really growing. Some of Milk's platforms at the time were promoting large, larger and less expensive childcare facilities, uh, free public transportation, and developing a board of, of civilians to oversee the police. Ooh, can we go back to all three of those? He used some non-traditional ways to campaign, as usual. Yeah. You know, of course. Including human sandwich boards, which I thought... What's a human sandwich board? Like, think about if I'm wearing a sandwich board. Oh, oh. And I'm just r- walking around being like, Harvey Milk for supervisor. Can I tell you what I thought you were talking about? What? Like, you know at weddings how people have donut walls? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about, like, humans dressed as sandwiches on a wall. I don't know why my brain went there. What a weird human I'm, centipede way to think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that this drink is helping me at all. Right. He also did this thing where he would shake hands for, like, hours and hours. He stood outside the camera shop a lot. He was basically just trying to get in as in front of as many people as possible. Yeah. Trying um, to be of the people and for the people and all that. And by the people. On November 8th, 1977, Harvey Milk won the supervisor role by 30% against 16 other candidates. After his victory, he drove onto Castro Street on the back of a motorcycle and escorted by the sheriff, where the community cheered and celebrated his victory. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for your reaction. It's a big deal. That's a huge deal. We're so excited for Harvey. I was thinking about that in the movie. And, like, just, you know, it's been so long oh, since yeah. I've seen the movie, so I was just imagining that scene. Yeah. I haven't and seen And I the got movie stuck there for a second. In a while, either. So, during this tar- time, Harvey had started dating somebody new. Um, it's another Jack. Uh, his name is Jack Lira, uh, who was from Mexico and had migrated to California after coming out. He had grown up with an abuse in, a, in an abusive household where his father beat him in attempts to, quote, beat the gay away. Sure, because that works. Sure. Harvey and Jack Lira started dating after Jack had drunkenly approached Harvey's office, asking Harvey if he was a Palomino or a stallion. And apparently there's a joke about balls there, but I don't really know what it is. So do with that. I, what you I will. actually don't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, 
a stallion's an uncastrated horse, right? I don't know, I guess. A palomino's a type of horse? Yeah. Hung like a horse. Hung like a horse. It's about dicks and balls. Dicks and balls. Dicks and balls. The couple spent the night together um, because obviously it was a great pickup line. For sure. uh, And they became inseparable. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, their relationship was not an easy one. Jack was controlling and obsessive of Harvey's time. He was jealous when other people spent time with Harvey. And he didn't always understand that work was a priority for him. Probably not a great thing since Harvey just got elected. For sure. He, it reminded me of like the partner's... That you can't leave alone at a party. Yeah. And that's just the worst. Oh. Like, oh my gosh, absolutely. They have to be by your side the whole time. They don't trust you and all of that. All of that jazz. Jack was also drunk in public often, and it became tough for Harvey because he was struggling to divide his time between his career and his relationship. Jack did, however, enjoy the perks of being with an up-and-coming politician. Wouldn't we all? Right? Also, the first gay pop, like... Yeah. Imagine dating the first gay politician. Yeah. I mean, I get childhood trauma and all of that, but yeah. Yeah. like just to be alive during that time, to be there during that time, and then to be that close. Mm-hmm. I can imagine the stress that that would take on a relationship. And anyways, continue. Yeah, it's a tough time. When Harvey Milk was sworn into his supervisor role, uh, becoming the first non-incumbent openly gay man in the U.S. to win an election of public office. Woo-hoo. It made headlines internationally. At the same time that he was sworn in, Carol Ruth Silver, a single woman, or excuse me, a single mom and Chinese American, along with Ela Hill Hutch, a black woman, were also sworn into office. And wow. they were also the first as well. That's incredible. During his time in office, he began to have several allies. However, there was still a large push against him. He received several death threats on a regular basis. I mean, it is the 70s. As we mentioned. Also, that would still happen today. Yeah, that's true. He did, however, manage to get on the right side of Mayor Moscano, and they became great allies. That's a good, that's a good ally to have. It's a great ally to have. He began to, or he attempted to pass a commuter commuter tax so that office workers who lived outside of the city and drove into the city for work would have to pay for city services that they were using. Mm. Dan White, a fellow supervisor of the district next door to Castro, had a tumultuous relationship with Harvey. Harvey had agreed with Dan White that a mental health facility for adolescents should not be built in White's district. However, after learning more about the facility, he decided to switch his vote. Ooh. So he, his vote caused Dan White to lose on this issue. And White never forgot this. White refused to speak to Milk after this and communicated with only, like, Milk's aides and other people. He was like, hey, tell Harvey this and this and this. Because we're so mature. Yeah, for, for sure. Other acquaintances remembered White as a very intense man. Quote, he was impulsive. He was extremely, he was extremely competitive. Obviously so. I think he could not take defeat at all. Yeah. End quote. White's first campaign manager, 
had quit in the middle of the campaign of a campaign and said that white was an ego an egotist and it was clear that he was anti-gay although he denied it to the press duh for sure white's associates and supporters described him as quote as a man with a publicist temper and an impressive capacity for nurturing a grudge end quote you don't say (laughs) so after they had their disagreement he opposed every single initiative and issue that harvey supported everything right right harvey began his uh tenure by sponsoring a civil rights bill that would outlaw discrimination based on sexual orientation the new york times called his bill quote the most stringent and encompassing in the nation dan uh Dan White was the only one to vote against it, and it was signed into law. Mayor Moscano used a light blue pen that Harvey had given him just for the occasion. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. What other issues was Milk ready to attack, you might ask? I'm hoping everything so far has been well ahead of his time. Yes. Like, all the issues that we're still talking about, still fighting for. Mm -hmm. So, what else was on his docket? Dog poop. Oh, (laughs) dog poop. (laughs) During his first month, he began to work um, in city ordinance to require uh, dog owners to scoop their pets poop. That feels like a no brainer to me. It does. But I guess it I guess that there there would have been a time where it wasn't written down anywhere. So, you know, if you're going to keep your city clean, I mean, obviously, there's health issues. Right. right. And just, you know, for tourism, you don't want to be dirty i mean that's why there are seatbelt laws because they put in seat belts and no one wore them like yeah sometimes have to make a big deal out of something that now feels mundane true so when he was working on this uh campaign he invited the press to do an interview to prove the the necessity of the ordinance and a camera crew interviewed harvey on the subject During the interview, it was kind of like a walking shot. Harvey was like walking with the interviewer and they were kind of talking. And during the interview, he literally steps in dog poop. Ew. That's good TV. Yeah, that's great TV. (laughs) Excellent for your campaign, but ew. Dan White was, of course, against it. For sure. Loves the dog poop. Can't get enough. In fact, please come bring your dog poop (laughs) on your poop on this yard. It needs more fertilizer. During this time, Harvey's relationship with Jack Lira was becoming more and more unstable. Jack's jealousy began increasing, and it was obvious to others that Jack's mental health was deteriorating. Jack had even locked himself in a closet at a party after being embarrassed by the intelligence of some of Harvey's political associates. Wow. Oh, I hate that. I hate that, too. I hate that for Harvey. Like, jeez. I hate that for both of them. Like... It super sucks for Harvey, and also it sucks to be experiencing, like, that level of mental health issue. Yes. One afternoon, um, Jack called Harvey in the middle of the workday and demanded that he come home right now. Understandably, Harvey was, you know, w- was working, um, but he told him that he'd be home by 6 o'clock as usual. Unfortunately, Harvey ended up uh, working a little late and re- arriving home after 6 p.m., there he found Jack dead in their home. <gasps> yes. And he had died by suicide. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah. Jack had left notes all around the house. 
uh, in a very cryptic way. Like, he just kind of left a trail of notes, one leading to another, leading to another. And the last note read, you always liked the circus, Harvey. How do you like my last act? That gave me chills. I That's, oh, I know. Ooh. I know. Um, and the tragedy continues. Uh, we remember Dan White, obviously. Uh, he opposed everything that Harvey does. Well, only 10 months after he was elected to supervisor, Dan resigns from his position on November 10th, 1978. He claims that his salary of $9,600 was not enough to support his family. So I converted it, obviously. Right. It's $44,666 in today's time. In, in San, San Francisco. Francisco. <clears throat> okay, yeah, that's not enough. Yeah, so 100%. I mean, that's barely enough. That's not enough in Greensboro. Yeah. So he then um, let it sit for a few days. And I think he kind of realized like what he'd done. So he went back and asked for his resignation to be withdrawn and for him to be reinstated at the supervisor position. And they said Mayor Moscanto had originally agreed to this. But after further consideration and after speaking with other supervisors, including Harvey Milk, um, they convinced, uh, they had convinced Moscone to appoint someone more in line with the growth and the growing ethnic diversity of White's previous district and someone more liberal leaning to represent the vote in that area. Right. This pissed him the fuck off. Of course it did. So then, um, that next week on November 18th and 19th, news broke of a mass suicide of 900 members of the People's Temple. The cult had relocated from San Francisco, San Francisco to Guyana. The California representative, Leo Ryan, was in Jonestown to check out the community and was, of course, killed by gunfire at the airstrip as he tried to escape. Wow. Dan White's response to this event was by saying, quote, you see that? One day I'm on the front page and the next I'm swiped right off. Way to make it about you. I know. And that's Chicago. Like, uh, yeah. What? Mayor Moscone was set to announce White's replacement on November 27th, 1978. An hour and a half before the press conference, Dan White entered the city hall through a basement window to avoid the metal detectors. He walked the two floors to the mayor's office. He entered his office and closed the door behind him. Witnesses heard arguing, shuffling, and then several gunshots. White shot the mayor in the shoulder and chest and then twice in the head. Wow. He exited the room and walked down the hallway where he ran into Harvey Milk. Harvey had no idea about what had just happened to the mayor. And Jack asks Harvey if he can speak to him for a moment, and he pulls him into his office. Dan White shot Harvey Milk five times, including twice in his head. Milk was 48 years old, and Moscone was 49. Quote, within an hour, White called his wife from a nearby diner. She met him at a church and was with him when he turned himself in. Many people left flowers on the steps of the city hall, and then eventually 25,000 to 40,000 formed a, a spontaneous candlelight march from Castro Street to City Hall. The next day, 
the bodies of Miscone and Milk were brought to the city hall uh, where mourners paid their respects. Oh, my gosh. In the wake of the Jonestown suicides, Moscone had recently increased security at City Hall. Cult survivors recent or uh, cult survivors recounted drills for suicide preparation that Jones had called White Knights, which is wild. Like Dan White, White Knights, God. Ooh. Rumors about the murder of Moscone and Milk were fueled by the coincidence of Dan White's name and the Jones and the Jones suicide yeah. preparations. That makes so much sense. A stunned district attorney called the assassination so close to the news about Jonestown incomprehensible, but denied any connection. Governor Jerry Brown ordered all flags in California to be flown at half mass and called Milk a hardworking and dedicated supervisor, a leader of San Francisco's gay community who kept his promise to represent all his constituents. Do you think there was any connection? Or do you think it's just a weird coincidence? I think it's a weird... I personally do. Yeah. I think it's a weird coincidence, too. But throwing in the cult, wow. I know. Especially because they worked for Harvey. Yeah. You know? Yeah. President Jimmy Carter expressed his shock uh, at both murders and sent his condolences. Dan White's arrest and trial caused a sensation and illustrated severe tensions between the liberal populations and the city police. The San Francisco police were mostly working class Irish descendants who intensely disliked the growing gay immigration as well as the liberal direction of the city government. After White turned himself in and confessed, he sat in his cell while his former colleagues on the police force told Harvey Milk jokes. Police openly wore free Dan White t-shirts in the days after the murder. Oh, my gosh. How corrupt. I know. An undersheriff for San Francisco later stated, quote, quote, the more I observe what went on at the jail, the more I began to stop seeing what Dan White did as the act of an individual and being began to see it as a political act and a political movement. White showed no remorse for his actions and exhibited vo- uh, vulnerability only during an eight minute call to his mother from jail. The jury of White's trial consisted of white, middle-class San Franciscans who were mostly Catholic. Gays and ethnic minorities were excused from the jury pool. Some of the members of the jury cried when they heard White's tearful recorded confession, at the end of which the interrogator thanked White for his honesty. White's defense attorney, Doug Schmidt, argued that his client was not responsible for his actions. Schmidt used the legal defense known as diminished capacity. Quote, good people, fine people with fine backgrounds simply don't kill people in cold blood. End quote. Schmidt tried to prove that White's um, anguished mental state was a result of manipulation um, by the politicians in City Hall who had consistently disappointed and confounded him, finally promising to give his job back only to refuse him again. Schmidt said that White's mental deterioration was demonstrated uh, by the junk food binging the night before the murders. The Can Twinkie you, defense? Yes. Since Is this was, really where the Twinkie defense comes from? I'm not sure. They don't say Twinkies exclusively, but we can oh, look okay. it up. Since he was usually known to have been a health food conscious person. 
area newspapers quickly dubbed it, oh, as the Twinkie defense. The Twinkie defense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, White was acquitted for, White was acquitted of the first degree murder charge on May 21st, 1979, but found guilty of voluntary manslaughter of both victims. Voluntary manslaughter of both victims. Voluntary manslaughter. <sighs> and uh, was sentenced to se- um, serve seven and two-thirds years. That's a very... Seven sp- years. Nine and three quarters. And the sentence was reduced for time served and good behavior. And the he, fuck? And he would be released in five years. For End killing quote. two... Two people, five years in prison. Oh, my... Two... Like, not even just two random people. Like... The mayor Mm -hmm. and Harvey Milk. Correct. Five fucking years. Five fucking... Holy shit. Yeah. I know. Harvey Milk left behind a legacy. He focused on small business ownership, collective groups and communities, inclusion, and leaving his world better than when he found it. Harvey was the first out gay person to be elected to office, but he paved the way for so many others. In June... We celebrate, um, you know, what folks have done before us and what they've achieved. And I hope that by discussing his life and legacy here, we can help to make the world a better place. And that is Harvey Milk. Bravo. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Mm. It's a wild story. It's a wild. It's not even a story. It's it's history. It's literally what happened. Um, But it, it makes no fucking sense. It's all so pointless. But I don't know who the second elected openly gay person Mm -hmm. in the country is. I have no idea who that is, which is unfortunate. Like, we should know that information. (coughs) But we know what the Twinkie defense is now. (laughs) But we know what the Twinkie defense is. Um, But, like, to be alive in a time where the first gay man gets elected and then is pretty quickly murdered. Mm Mm-hmm all the mixed emotions that come with that and it feels like so much of queer history is experiencing those mixed emotions like Mm -hmm. we have this huge win and then you look around and you know there's the pulse nightclub shooting Mm -hmm. or you look around and you know trans women of color are being murdered Mm -hmm. in mass like we have so many things to celebrate so many people who have made such a phenomenal impact people like harvey milk who was clearly before his time especially when it comes to dog poop um (laughs) but then like so much tragedy is also surrounded yeah by it 100 percent. yeah wow you covered that beautifully and i love how you weaved the cult in there too Mm, so weave it in girl good cult episode even thank you so much let's take a quick break and when we come back we're talking about priscilla queen of the desert And we're back. Don't call it a comeback. <laughs> so, as with cult episodes, uh, you go first, I go second, and today we are talking about Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So good. I had never seen this movie before. Um, 
and I'm so in love with it now. It's good. It's it's genuinely good. It's like some cult movies are not good. Yeah. Actually good. Actually good. And we're going to get into all of the good things about it. And also, like, maybe a little problematic thing. Just a little one. We'll get there, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here is our plot summary, because, you know, not everyone has seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. You can pause, go watch the movie, come back and finish, or you can listen to our plot summary. When drag queen Anthony takes or agrees to take his act on the road, he invites fellow cross-dresser Adam and transsexual Bernadette, this comes from Rotten Tomatoes, I did not rate this, mm-hmm. uh, to come along. In their colorful bus named Priscilla, the three performers travel across the Australian desert performing for enthusiastic crowds and homophobic locals. But when they're, the two other performers learn the truth about why Anthony took the job, it threatens their act and their friendship. Mm-mm. So this movie shocked the hell out of me. I had no idea what to expect. Um, it's definitely a queer classic, but I'd put off watching it for way too long. But here's what shocked me. It's funny. It's campy. It's weird. But it's also so sincere mm-hmm. and like so sentimental and in some places even just really tender mm-hmm. and kind. So it was released in 1994 and we know our Rotten Tomatoes meter is like our indicator for cult classics. Like usually cult classics are score really low on the tomato meter and then really high in audience. But this one, once again, breaks the mold. It had a 94% on Rotten Hell Tomatoes yeah. with yeah. an 88% audience score. So both were high, mm-hmm. but the Rotten Tomatoes meter was higher. 94%. That's impressive. It's so good. Yeah. I think Coraline has like a 94%. Or really? You know? Yeah. We should one day just randomly Google the highest you know, scores on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, yeah. That would be a fun. That would be fun. Let's do that next episode. Okay, let's do it. So the film was a surprise worldwide because not only was it a hit, but it was also a positive portrayal of LGBTQ plus individuals and really helped introduce queer themes to a more mainstream audience. The movie was released in Australia and was only like a secondary film here, so it didn't have the same box office impact, but was clearly well received once it did start to gain popularity. It won an Academy Award for Best Costume Design. Of course. Obvious. Obvious. The costumes. Um, which was at the 67th Academy Awards. Um, among other designers, the film's costume department included many pieces of jewelry from Ziggy Ateus of Ziggy Originals, New York. Oh, and was screened in the Uncertain Regard section of the 1994 Uh, Canis Film Festival and became a cult classic both in Australia and abroad. Priscilla subsequently provided the basis for the musical Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which opened in 2006 in Sydney before traveling to New Zealand, the UK, Canada, and Broadway. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about the characters because I love the characters in this movie. So we have Bernadette, uh, Anthony. I love Bernadette. I love, love Bernadette. Bernadette. Probably my favorite. You know what? Let's stop and go one by one rather okay. than listing all of them. Okay, so we have Terrence Stomp as Bernadette Bassinger. I would love to give a shout out to Wikipedia or whoever wrote the article for Wikipedia. Um, they don't dead name Bernadette. Good. They dead name her in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what's his face? Felicia. Yeah. Bern- uh, dead name 
yeah. dead names Bernadette. They don't do that online. That's great. Isn't that beautiful? That is. Um, That's because Felicia's kind of an asshole. <laughs> Felicia's super duper an asshole. But Bernadette is a classy broad. Yeah. Like, always looking nice, very well put together. Um, seems to be, like, the most level-headed of the group. Tell me what you love about Bernadette. I don't know. I think she has some really tender moments. Mm-hmm. I think, And I think she's also, like, the parental figure. Yeah. Um, I think they really look up to her. Um, I, she can take shots like it's nobody's business. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think, I think she knows, you know, everything to say at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I couldn't agree more. So Terrence Stomp, who plays Bernadette, um, was in some things. Do you know what else he was in? Because I was trying to figure it out the whole movie and didn't Google it till the very end. But the moment I saw it, I I knew. Um, Birdcage. It did not come up. No, no. He's not the um the dad the politician dad. Let me see. I think I just have the. No, I think I might. Be... Nope. 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 Eh. Not in Birdcage. Um, he is, however, in The Haunted Mansion. He's the creepy butler from The Haunted Mansion. Oh, I haven't seen that. Ever? Ever. Period? Mm. That was a full sentence? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I was going to say in a while, but then I was like, that's a lie. So I'll just stop. (laughs) Um, well, you should definitely watch that because you've got a trip coming up where Mm -hmm. you could ride The Haunted Mansion ride. True. And you really need to see the movie. True, 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 true. Um, he was also in The Collector, Murder Mystery, and Yes Man. Mm. So he's a fairly well-known guy. Hugo Weaving played Anthony, also known as Tick Bellrose, whose stage name was Mitzi Delbra. Um, Tick was also in Lord of the Rings and The Interview. And The Matrix. And The Matrix. Um, I love Mitzi. So Tick slash Mitzi is like the main character He's the reason that they're on Priscilla. Priscilla, I have listed as a character herself. (laughs) Um, But I I think Tick's most enduring, like, scenes are at the very end with his son. Mm -hmm. So, um, turns out they're on this bus going, spoiler alert, obviously. obviously. Um, They're on this bus. They're going to actually do a show at Tick's wife's. Uh, cabaret thing um, and you get to meet Tick's son Benjamin who um, is now going to be living with Tick for a bit and like Tick is just so worried about being a good dad and not wanting to mess his kid up and his kid is like so pro-gay so pro-Tick yeah. um, it's just really really sweet alright then we have our major asshole uh, Guy Pierce, who plays Adam Whitley, a.k.a. Felicia Jolly Goodfellow. <laughs> Duh. Great name. Who was also in Lord of the Rings, Memento, The Hurt Locker, and The King's Speech. Felicia has the best worst lines. Yeah, she does. Like, she spit singers mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Also, she has the best outfits. And the laugh really gets on my nerves, though. The high-pitched laugh. Hate it. Yep. Zero out of ten. Zero out of ten. I'm going to give her five additional points for every cute outfit that she wore. That's fair. 
Also, she's the one who, like, sits on top of the, on top of Priscilla and, like, in the shoe and rides with her dress yeah. behind her. And it's gorgeous. And then we have our main character, Priscilla herself, <laughs> who is a lavender van with a giant stiletto silver heel affixed to the top of the roof. She's, it's a good bus. It's a great bus. It makes me want a travel bus. I know. I've always kind of wanted that. I have two. I especially wanted it after seeing this movie, though. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Um, how would you feel living on a tour bus with three drag queens? Okay. Nope, two drag queens and a trans woman. I would love it. Sounds great. Sign me up. Five out of five. Ten out of ten. Ten out of ten. One hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So there are many, many things that this movie gets really, really right. And some things that it gets not so really, really right. (laughs) Um, One of the things that it does especially well is navigate children, understanding drag, and the queer community. Um, Like, Tick's son just gets it. He asks Tick about having a boyfriend and listening to ABBA. There's no hint of, like, sexual orientation around his son. They're not trying to sexualize a child, which is beautiful. It's just acceptance. It's Mm -hmm. just, this is your dad. This is what your dad does. Um, the relationship between Tick and his wife isn't like super ideal. Their relationship or their communication's not great, but she obviously adores him, is super accepting of who he is, and we love that. And then there's Bob, who also does a lot right, unconditionally loves and accepts Bernadette. There isn't the expectation that she's always dolled up. He just wants to be close to her. I know. It's so sweet. It's cute. What are some other things that you think this movie gets really right? Um, I think that it has a way of pinpointing um, the safety issue that queer folks feel. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It it does it really well. You know, going into a new space and not really knowing exactly what's on the other side of that door is a real fear that a lot of lgbt folks have and for really valid reasons 100 percent. and you see some of those reasons in this that doesn't shy away from them no it doesn't and it's all really real examples yeah it really is that's a great point like so much of gay culture is woven throughout this of course right like mm-hmm. it's you know three very queer characters but it doesn't shy away from the hard parts of being queer. It's not just all the beauty and great things that come with this identity. It's not trying to, you know, make it seem fluffy or easy. It's just very, very real. The one thing it doesn't do super well is it has come under some criticism for, like, alleged racist and sexist elements, particularly in the trail of the Filipina character Cynthia. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So Melba Margaranson in the Center for Fel- Filipino Concerns stated that Cynthia's portrayal as a gold digger, a prostitute, and an entertainer whose expertise is popping out ping pong balls from her sex organ. This is a quote. Mm-hmm. Um, a manic episode or a manic depressive, loud and vulgar was the worst stereotype of the Filipina. And she argued that by portraying Cynthia in this manner, the filmmakers were violently killing the dignity of Filipina women, something that she feared would lead to, quote, more violence against us. Um, An editor writing 
also echoed these concerns and highlighted that, quote, it's perhaps a pity that a film with a message of tolerance and acceptance for homosexuals should feel the need to do what looks to very to what looks very much to us like a racist and sexist stereotype. Similarly, his study of bisexuality in cinema, Wayne and Bryant argued that while this was an excellent film, the adventures of Priscilla was marred with, quote, instances of uh, gratuitous sexism. So, not ideal. Nope. And Important to point out. What? Important to point out. Super duper, because we, you know, just talked about how much we love Bob. Like, Bob adores Bernadette. There's so much acceptance for Bernadette in Bob. Um, yeah, they wrote Bob's character really well, um, because I don't think that... I, I think that there are... Have you seen the thing where it's like... Uh, treating women fairly that you only find attractive is not like right feminism or whatever. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I think that people like him really exist. I think that they wrote his wife's character poorly, but I think that Bob is a real person somewhere. Right, I agree. Um, producer Clark defended the film against these accusations, arguing that while Cynthia was a stereotype, it was not the purpose of filmmakers to avoid the portrayal of quote vulnerable characters from specific minority backgrounds. He stated that she was, quote, a misfit, uh, like the three protagonists are, and just about everybody else in this film is, and her presence is no more a statement about Filipino women than having three drag queens is a statement about Australian men. Um, so I can't say that's a great defense. Using negative stereotypes is still hurtful. Um, and I think... So many movies don't age well, right? Yeah. Like, I think that this is one of those instances where we can love Priscilla for all that it is. And we can still look at it critically and say, oh, it could have done this better. Of like, course. Like, what's the negative impact here? And owning that negative impact. Um, but there's so, so much to love about Priscilla. So you have seen this movie a lot more than I have. Um do you have any like favorite parts or favorite things about Priscilla that like you go back? What do you go back to this movie for? So my dad grew up in Australia. So I'm familiar with all the places that they're going to. Like I know where Alice Springs is and I know why it's a dangerous place. Like my dad calls my dad calls it like the armpit of the world. Right. <laughs> like it's just, you know, and I think it's also important to understand for Americans that like we have the South, we have the Midwest, we have people, we have places outside of large cities that are really scary for people to go to. And that is just as likely to happen. And, and it is a reality for every other country and space on the planet. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I think I think that's a big thing for me. Um, and I think I think it's really nice to see. Because we have our, our U.S. classics um, that we kind of go back to. And I think it's really good to see an international uh, take on it. I agree. And I love that this particular interna international take on it happened in the early 90s. Like, mm -hmm. U.S. cinema was not there. Um, I mean, I know that we had other movies that came out before, but, like, Rocky Horror is one that comes to mind. Um, but it doesn't really show the experiences of queer folks. It just happens to be a queer cult classic. Um, so I think this movie was such a trailblazer in the way that 
it portrayed the joys and struggles of queer people. And it's not a movie about being queer. It's a movie with queer characters. Right. It's not a coming out story. It's not a coming out story. It's not, you know, there's no tragic ending. It's like the characters are well-rounded. They are fully formed Mm -hmm. individuals. Speaking of being well-rounded and fully formed individuals, let's talk about the clothes. (laughs) Um, so there are so many iconic costumes and outfits in this movie. Do you, par chance, have a favorite? Um, I like what what Felicia wore going into the bar. Uh, Felicia wore a lot of like half. It's basically just like underwear. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's not a skirt, but it's not just under. There's like some additional fabric. Um. So I I love the I love the boldness of that because you don't you know you don't see that all the time right right I love the flip flop dress oh my god the flip flop the flip flop dress is iconic do you want to take a guess how much it cost to make in 1994 when they made the movie oh five hundred dollars oh good guess you want to try one more time it's lower than that a hundred and twenty okay it was seven dollars shut the fuck up <laughs> it was sh- seven dollars to make. I mean, of course, That's they have their own, like, budget. yeah, for sure. And, of course, they had their own costuming person. So, yeah. like, they already had a lot of the materials, I assume. So, but for those of you who haven't seen it, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a dress made of flip-flops. It's a dress made of flip-flops with uh, flip-flop earrings. Thank you very much. With flip-flop earrings. Um, yeah, it's a statement. What That would be a good Halloween costume. So, my literal next sense is I think we should have a... Pr- Priscilla-themed party, mm-hmm. maybe Halloween party one day. Love it. Like, how cool would that be to just have everyone dress up as Priscilla it's like, characters? It's like going to the Met Gala. <laughs> 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 just, like, the weirdest shit you can think of. The the blue, like, plastic wig and, mm-hmm. you know. It is very campy in that way that I yeah. appreciate. I, th- I think that that's what draws me to so many of these movies is how campy they are. Mm-hmm. Um yeah okay so my next little bit here is there anything else that you feel like we should cover about the movie because my next little bit is about drag drag and politics right now because i don't feel like we can talk about all of this and safety and representation without talking about drag bands no i would say if you haven't watched it go watch it i second that for sure Okay, so we cannot talk about this movie without talking about politics. We know the personal is political. Um, And I don't want to make everything political, but in this instance, we can't not. This movie did inspire so much change and had such a profound impact on drag communities. So, we know that Tennessee became the first state to explicitly ban drag shows in public places um, back in, I think, March. After Governor Bill Lee signed the provision into law hours after the measure passed in the Senate, quote, drag shows have become the latest target of conservative criticism as a slew of other anti-drag bills have been introduced in at least 14 other states, including Arizona, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Florida, and others. Language across these numerous bills is similar to the Tennessee bill, which prohibit quote, adult cabaret performances in public spaces where minors could watch. In Tennessee's bill, adult cabaret is defined as adult-oriented performances that include male or female impersonators. So, for fun, 
I Googled because this has to be spurred by something, right? Like we're all about safety. We're all about children's safety. So I Googled the number of crimes committed by drag queens while in drag. And you know what came up? What? A big fat zero? A big fat, <laughs> literally nothing. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Um, and we talked about this a little bit last week in our, our Pride episode. So while this doesn't expressly outlaw drag in bars, it does confine uh, queens to those spaces. Drag queen story time, bingo, drag shows at Pride, etc. It sends the message that queens should not be seen or heard because it's perverse. God, it's so transphobic. I can't even. It's so terribly transphobic. It's just, yeah, so... Be who you want to be in the privacy of your home is right. what they're saying. But, but we don't, don't want to see dare it. Dare step out exactly and let people see you. Even though, like, I, I keep thinking back to Benjamin and Tick and their relationship and seeing a young child who I mean, it's obviously a film, but when it is normalized, when a child has a relationship with a parent who loves them, who is safe and healthy, everyone benefits. When communities are um, inclusive and allow people to be themselves and heal and grow and express themselves, everyone benefits. Like, drag is a form of expression, It, which is, of course, beautifully illustrated in Priscilla. It's a chance for people to literally try on outfits and explore, you know who they are and have fun um, and it adds so much beauty to our communities so support your local queens go to drag shows in honor of pride month support trans communities provide positive representation for trans kids so that trans kids can become trans adults and do this every day and all year long amen amen um, so Priscilla Queen of the Desert has so much more to add like the movie, you could go in scene by scene and really deconstruct it. Um, but we don't want to spoil that much for you. So. Beautiful. That's our cult movie. Yeah. What a good two Pride episodes. Pride, we love you. We're here for you. We're with you. We see you. We are you. We, we are love you. you. <laughs> Uh, intersections we don't have to find because it's we're a gay episode. and this is a cult episode. <laughs> <laughs> we're still in the closet, unfortunately. Uh, but we we have wrapped some blankets around. We're trying to make the audio a little bit better for you guys. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. TBD. But uh, we love you guys so much. Thank you for taking this journey with us. If you guys want to get the cocktail recipes, head on over to patreon.com or just click the link in our Instagram and I'll take you right to it. Um Leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. And uh, check us out and talk to us on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. We really do. We'll respond and everything. Pinky Ooh. promise. Pinky promise. We love you so much. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content, 
and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks and keep listening.